let's, let's go to prayer as we prepare our hearts for worship in the Word this morning. Father, thank you so much for this week. Thank you for time um, just to gather as a body throughout the week for our children to come and to experience the wonder of knowing you and of having a relationship with you. And so, Father, we pray over the work that will be happening this week. We pray um, that you would be glorified in the teaching, in the activities, in the fellowship, and everything that happens this week. We pray for safety for all those involved. We pray for good weather. But most of all, Father, we pray that you would use this week to impress on our children the wonder of knowing you and the importance of a relationship with you and the importance of a church that faithfully teaches your word and the gospel. And so we do um, just pray for you to bless and to show your favor upon this place as we engage in that ministry this week. And now, Father, as we turn our attention to your word this morning, we pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to this passage of Scripture. Help us to appreciate anew the wonder of who you are. And Father, we know that we are created to know you and to worship you. And so we pray that as we engage with this text, that would be our goal, to come away from this with a greater appreciation for who you are and a better ability to stand before you and to worship. Father, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace, which are the only reasons that we stand before you today and that we can open your word and even have a relationship with you. And so we do ask um, for your help as we look at this passage. Help us to come away um, with a greater appreciation for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, for those of you who have small children at home or can remember what it was like to have small children at home, you know that it is impossible to hide anything from a toddler. It doesn't matter if you put it high, if you put it low, if you bury it, if you put it in a locked cabinet, it doesn't matter where that item is. If you're trying to hide it from a toddler, they will find it. And generally, you're trying to hide it for their own good, right? I mean, that pair of scissors, as fun and as bright as it looks, is not something you should be playing with. Maybe it's a really nice book that you're just trying to keep them from chewing on and, and tearing up. As fun as that would sound, they're just not allowed to do that. But whatever it is, wherever you hide it, they are bound to find it. Now, you may think that I'm talking about my toddler, Merit, and you would be exactly right. <laughs> that, is, that is the difficulty in our home um, at this present moment. And uh, I've just about, I'm this close to employing reverse psychology on him. Okay, now you tell me if this is brilliant or not, and you also need to know that this plane is not endorsed by my wife. So, could be completely shot down when I get home. But I'm about to employ reverse psychology on him. So if I'm trying to hide the pair of scissors, rather than hiding it, I'll just put it in the container of blocks. And then he'll never find it. Or the TV remote that he wants so badly, I'll just stick that in his toy bin, and then he'll never find it. Okay. I don't know. You're looking pretty skeptical about that plan. Maybe. Maybe I shouldn't try that. But... Um, the only hope that I have, regardless of how I feel, the fact that I feel that Merritt can find everything and he knows where everything is hidden and there is no crevice of our house that he will not explore and discover, regardless of how I feel about that, I know something to be true. I know that that's not true because the only person that that is true of is God. So regardless of whether I think Merritt can accomplish that or not right now, which I may or may not, 
In my mind, I know that that is not true. And the only person that that is true of is our God, is Yahweh. That he is the omnipresent one, the one who can be everywhere all at the same time. Without not being somewhere else, he is everywhere presently, and he is aware of everything that happens in every place at the same time. And that specific character quality, his omnipresence, is what we're focused on this morning in these particular plagues. I believe that all three of these plagues, the plague of the frog, the gnats or mosquitoes, and the flies, all communicate together an omnipresent picture of God the inescapable nature of his revelation and of his judgment. You cannot hide, you cannot avoid God, and his judgment will always find you. And so, while that truth is maybe fearful for those who are outside of God's will or those who are not a part of his family, what this passage also shows us is for those who are a part of the family of God, his omnipresence is actually something that gives us great comfort. The fact that we can never get away from his love, that we can never be outside of his power or protection, is a source of great comfort and hope for the people of God and those who are in his family. And so today as we walk through this passage, we're going to be looking at those two facets or angles of God's omnipresence, the judgment that it brings on those who don't know him, and the comfort that it brings to those who are a part of his family. Now, as you remember, last week we talked about the turning of the Nile to blood, and we saw that that entire chapter was to focus on God's power. Um, His power is par excellence in this world. There is nothing else in this world that can compare to God's power and His ability, and these signs show that power and ability. But we also talked about the fact that these plagues have a progression, and so the plagues we saw last week, or the signs that we saw last week, were more symbolic. They just showed the power that God is able to draw upon and to utilize. Well, the three plagues that we look at today are less severe than some of the ones that are going to come later. Um, The frogs, the flies, and um, the gnats or mosquitoes are merely a nuisance, as disgusting as it would be to have frogs throughout your entire home. There is no financial or physical harm that is caused to people by their existence, at least as far as I'm, I'm aware of. And so these plagues, while they show an increased nature in God's power and His judgment, they are still an anticipation of His full power and full judgment that comes later on in the plagues. And so what we see in these plagues is still a foreshadowing of what is to come later in the book. So let's start in Exodus chapter 8. And we will read verses 1 through 7 together. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord says, Let my people go so they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I am going to strike your entire territory with frogs. The Nile will swarm with frogs, which will come up and go into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and on your people and in your ovens and your kneading bowls. So the frogs will come up on you, your people, and on all your servants. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Extend your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the streams, and over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron extended his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. However, the soothsayer priests did the same with their secret arts, making frogs come up on the land of Egypt." So a little bit of trivia for you this morning. This is the only place in the entire Bible that frogs are mentioned. 
The only place frogs come up in the entire canon of Scripture. Not only is it the only place frogs are mentioned, it's the only place any amphibians are mentioned at all. So a fairly unique mention of these frogs and of their usage here in the plagues. But the point of what Moses and the Lord is communicating through this plague is what we said in the beginning. It's God's omnipresent nature, the inescapable nature of this plague. You cannot go anywhere in the land of Egypt without seeing frogs. And that's communicated by this phrase, I'm going to strike your entire territory with frogs. Now, this word here that's used for territory is a fairly unique word in the Old Testament. It is usually translated as the word border. And so we see it most often in the book of Joshua, where um, they're writing and they're talking about the borders of each division of tribal land. Your border goes to the east here and to the west here. I have no idea if my directions are right, but you get the picture, right? That's your border. That's the land that you are given. So why does Moses employ that very specific term here and using it to describe territory? Well, several times throughout the Old Testament, when, when the picture that they're wanting to communicate is from border to border, the entire territory, they use this word to describe the entire nation. And so the picture that Moses is painting here is there were frogs from the north to the south to the east to the west all throughout the territory of Egypt. They were covered with frogs. Now, not only is the entire nation covered and all of the land covered with frogs, but he even goes into the specific spaces that those frogs inhabit. I feel like you're watching one of those suspense movies, which I don't watch very often because I have enough stress in my life. I don't need to watch a movie to get stressed. But, you know, the, the killer or whoever comes into the house, you know, and you're waiting for him, and then he comes upstairs and... And then he comes into the bedroom, and finally he looks under the bed, and of course, you know, they're found. But there's sort of that picture in the text here. The, the frogs aren't just in the nation, they're in your homes. And they're not just in your homes, but they're in your bedroom. And they're not just in your bedroom, but they're even in your beds. And then if you go to the kitchen, they're not just in your kitchen, but they're even inside the cabinets, in the bowls that are stored there. So the picture is, there are frogs everywhere. The other interesting thing to note about them is they come up almost spontaneously out of the Nile. And so part of the miracle that God is doing here is he is creating, he is doing a new work of creation and making an army of new frogs that come up out of the Nile and take over the entire land of Egypt. Now, I can't say that I've ever had an experience quite like this, um, which I don't think anyone really has. But probably the closest I've ever come to this is the geckos that enter the houses in the south, and specifically in Texas. Now, you know you're a tenderfoot when you go to Texas, and you see a gecko in the house, and you kind of startle and jump. Like, what's a lizard doing in the house? Because Texans live in a symbiotic relationship with geckos. And so the true sign that you're a Texan is when you welcome the geckos in your home. Because if the gecko's in the home, that means they're eating all the mosquitoes and the nasty bugs that would be feasting on you. And so the gecko is welcome because he's eating all the mosquitoes. Now, I may still be a tenderfoot, but uh, I do believe in the creation mandate, which says that humans are to rule and have dominion over this earth. And that means if there's ever a lizard in my house, it will be a dead lizard in no time at all. But 
you would find geckos at the dinner table, there could be geckos in your bedroom, and occasionally there were even geckos in your bed. It happened. Um, and no matter what, no matter how often I was around that or saw that, it never felt normal. It was still shocking and disturbing every single time. And if that's how I felt with just one gecko or maybe two geckos, I cannot imagine what it would feel like to have frogs through your entire house, to never be able to escape them and to see them everywhere. I have no idea if these were loud frogs either. I mean, we all know what frogs sound like here. Could you imagine the countryside filled with frogs and the deafening noise that that would make? So while this plague is not causing financial or physical harm, I think we all can understand the annoyance and the nuisance that this plague would have caused to the Egyptians. And so, because of that, we see Pharaoh's response to to Moses and the Israelites in verse 8. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron, and he said, Plead with the Lord to remove the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go so that they may sacrifice to the Lord. And Moses said to Pharaoh, The honor is yours to tell me, When shall I plead for you and your servants and your people that the frogs be destroyed from you and your houses and that they be left only in the Nile? Pharaoh said, Tomorrow. And so Moses said, May it be according to your word, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs will depart from you and your houses and from your servants and your people, and they will be left only in the Nile. And then Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord concerning the frogs which he had inflicted upon Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. And the frogs died out of the houses, the courtyards, and the fields, and they piled them in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and did not listen to them just as the Lord had said. Now, we've talked about the fact that God is the one hardening Pharaoh's heart, that God is the one orchestrating Pharaoh's emotions, his rebellion, and his decisions so that Pharaoh can choose nothing other than sin. And so if we believe that that's what God is doing here, why, in his sovereign will, does God cause Pharaoh to soften, then only to harden his heart again at the end? What might be the point that God is communicating by that system and the way that is, that is happening? Well, I think that it's based upon the fact that Pharaoh serves as the prototype of evil in this passage. He is the picture, the absolute description and image of what evil and sinfulness looks like. And so I think there's an interesting comparison when we think about it in those terms, because God's especial hatred is not reserved for the outright rebellious. While they will experience their judgment and obviously are in rebellion to God, God's especial hatred and judgment is reserved for those who say one thing and then choose to do another. Those who profess belief or profess to say one thing and then recant that belief or fall back upon it. And so I think this system that Pharaoh, or the cycle that Pharaoh goes through of, of softening and seeming to repent, but then hardening his heart again, shows that he is this absolute picture of evil. Someone who is softening, but then not following through on what he says that he will do. And so as we think about that in, in the light of this omnipresence of God, um, I think it's interesting to view that in the light of the integrity that we are all called to live as believers of Christ. Integrity is the characteristic or the aspect of who you are when no one is looking. 
Are you living the same way when there's no one around as you are when you have the accountability of other people? We talked about this at Men's Bible Study on Monday night. We had a great kickoff to that study for the summer. And one of the aspects and characteristics they talked about was the need for men to walk in integrity, that our private lives would be inconsistent or would be consistent with our public lives, that they would be one in the same. And the reason or the foundation for that integrity, the reason that we are called to live with integrity is exactly because of this truth, because of the fact that God is omnipresent, because God is everywhere and sees everything When we say no one is watching, well, that means God is the one who's watching. God is the one who sees our attitudes, who sees our hearts, and who sees the way that we live. And so our integrity is based upon the fact that God is omnipresent and that every moment of our day is to be lived before the face of God, to live every moment and to make every decision in light of the fact that we serve an omnipresent God who sees everything that we do. And every decision and character choice that we make has the opportunity to bring him glory right here and now. And so as we think about that being our call to live as men and women of integrity before an omnipresent God, we see the abject failure of Pharaoh to do that. Pharaoh who says one thing and then does another and is the picture of someone who does not have integrity, who does not match up what he says with how he lives. But that picture of Pharaoh is also contrasted with what they say about God. Look at verse 10 with me. So Moses said, may it be according to your word so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. There is no one like the Lord our God. Now this phrase is one that's familiar and you may have heard it before. It occurs all throughout the Old Testament specifically. And when this term is used, it is almost always used to talk about Yahweh in contrast to an idol. So here's what you say your idol can do. Here's what power you think your idol has. But in contrast to that, here is the power of Yahweh. And there is no one like the Lord our God. There is no one who has the power and the ability like the Lord our God does. And so that phrase is almost always to show the impotence and the weakness and the futility of the false gods that we are prone to worship. If you have time this week, I would invite you to read Jeremiah chapter 10. That entire chapter is based upon this concept, and Jeremiah uses this phrase throughout that chapter, there is no one like our God. And so it's a picture of his preeminence, his exalted place that he inhabits in this world. But I don't want you to miss something. Notice the power that God uses to give evidence to that claim. Now, if it were me, if I were Yahweh, which thank goodness I am not, I would want to do something amazing to support that claim, right? I'd want to perform some spectacular miracle, have the sun stand still or or something of that nature. But look at what Moses says. The thing that demonstrates that there is no one like our God So the frogs will depart from you and your houses and from your servants and your people, and they will be left only in the Nile. So what is the spectacular sign that demonstrates the power and the preeminence of our God? It's actually creation functioning as it is normally supposed to function. The frogs will depart and will go back to the Nile, and I will reestablish creative order, and that 
will show that there is no one like our God. And I don't want you to miss that truth. The power of our God is displayed in the normal, everyday functioning of this world. God's common grace upon mankind is illustrated in simply the functioning, the normal functioning of our world. We only think about that when things go wrong, when, when there's a natural disaster or, or when something goes out of order. But God's power is actually on display in the normal functioning of this world. It is God's incredible, omnipotent power that keeps the planets orbiting in their courses. It is God's omnipotent power that causes the rain to fall in season. It is God's omnipotent power that keeps this earth turning on its axis so that we experience seasons. It is God's omnipotent power that does all of those things. Our God's power is on display in the normal, everyday runnings and operations of this world. It's an incredible thought to behold as we think about our God as presented in this passage. So, Pharaoh asks for the frogs to leave. The frogs do leave, but I think it's significant that the frogs all die. God could have had the frogs disappear in any way possible, right? He created them out of nothing. He could have had them just vanish into oblivion. He could have had them vaporized in no time at all. But no, instead, God causes every single one of those million frogs to die. Why? Why would he do that? The, the passage literally says the frogs died and they piled them in heaps of heaps. So heaping heaps. There were so many dead frogs covering the landscape of Egypt. Well, I think there's two things that that, that communicates. First, if you're staring at a pile of dead frogs, which that's not a very pleasant picture to behold, but if you're staring at a pile of dead frogs, you cannot miss the reality of what happened. Those weren't your imagination. You didn't just hallucinate all of those frogs. That actually happened. And there are real dead frogs piled up throughout the land of Egypt to signify that this really happened. But also, I think there's a connection to what we read in the first plague. Because the water turned to blood, and the fish died, and the land stank. Now the frogs died, and the land stank. And the point is, when you reject God's commands, and you do not obey the word of the Lord, the consequence is death. And while it's just fish that die first and frogs that die next, those of us who know the story know where this ends. Eventually, Egyptians' children die, and eventually the entire army of Egypt dies as well. And so when, dis- when you disobey God's word, the consequence is always death and stench. But that doesn't preach as well. So we move on to our second plague for the day, the plague of the insects. So pick up with me in verse 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Extend your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may turn into gnats through all the land of Egypt. And they did so, and Aaron extended his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on every person and animal. All the dust of the earth turned into gnats through all the land of Egypt. The soothsayer priests tried with their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. And so there were gnats on every person and animal. And then the priests said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. So there is a bit of a 
a division or a discussion about what these flying insects were. And that's really the only description we get in Scripture. They're called flying insects. And so most likely they're either gnats or mosquitoes. And commentators sort of fall on thinking that they're mosquitoes because they think mosquitoes are more annoying and bothersome. And so therefore that would be the plague. And I would just like to submit that clearly those commentators have not been to a Little League game in an evening in June with a swarm of gnats around your head because that is very annoying and irritating. So I hold out the possibility that it could have been gnats or mosquitoes, either one. So, um, and both were, were annoying and irritating. But in this passage, we see a lot of similarities to descriptions throughout the other plagues. And so what's most important to, to look at in this section is the thing that is different. And so what is different in this story? It's the fact that the magicians cannot replicate this miracle. They cannot imitate what the power of God does in this pericope. And so I think there's irony communicated in that. Because in our minds, which would be harder to create? A frog, right? A large, complex organism like a frog, or a, a minuscule gnat that you can hardly see. Which would be harder to create? Well, in our minds, obviously, we think the frog would be harder to create. But the one that the magicians could not create was the gnat or the mosquito, the minuscule flying insect they could not replicate. And so the point of that, obviously, is, is it's God's power and ability that creates these organisms. And it's just as complicated and difficult to create something as small as a gnat as it is a frog. But either way, God has restricted their power on this particular plague so they cannot imitate His power as they go through it. And they say, this is the finger of God. Now, that's not a, a conversion. That's not language that says we now believe in Yahweh or we believe in God. But what it says is this is the real deal. This is really something supernatural and powerful and divine. And so they are calling on Pharaoh to say, I don't know what this guy is, is plugged into. I don't know what he's accessing, but he is accessing something that has way more power than we are ever exposed to. And these are people who would have utilized demonic power. These are people who would have known what supernatural power felt like. And for them to say, this is power we've never seen before, is an amazing statement and claim. And so clearly God's power is on display if even the magicians can recognize that. And so we move from the gnats then into the plague of the flies. Um, so we will read verses 20 through 24. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh as he comes out to the water and say to him, This is what the Lord says. Let my people go so they may serve me. For if you are not going to let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and on your servants and on your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians will be full of swarms of flies and also the ground on which they live. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people are living, so that no swarms of flies will be there, in order that you may know that I, the Lord, am in the midst of the land, and I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign will occur. And then the Lord did so, and thick swarms of flies entered the house of Pharaoh and the houses of the servants, and the land was laid waste because of the swarms of flies in the land of Egypt. So, this word is, is 
generally thought to simply be a housefly, a common generic housefly, um, not, not a biting fly or anything of that nature, just a swarm of flies. And so uh, we see the irritation that these would cause, but we also recognize the parallels between the frogs and the flies. Did you hear it as we read through? Where were the flies going? Into your houses, onto your people. And so it's the same image that we get of the frogs, that these flies are inescapable. There's nowhere you can go where these flies cannot find you and cannot reach you. And so it's another picture of this omnipresence of God. You cannot escape Him. But in this passage, we see a second facet or a second side to that omnipresence. And we see what God's omnipresence accomplishes for His people. Look in verse 22. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people are living, so that no swarms of flies will be there, in order that you may know that I, the Lord, am in the midst of the land. I, the Lord, am in the midst of the land. His presence, God's omnipresence, will root him in Goshen with his people. But notice what that presence communicates. While his omnipresence brings judgment on the Egyptians, his omnipresence brings comfort and protection for his people. Now, this is the first plague where Moses has articulated this fact that God has separated the judgment that falls upon the Egyptians from the nation of Israel. And while it's the first time that he has explicitly said that, that separation is implicit throughout all of the plagues. God puts the judgment on the Egyptians and protects and preserves his people. The judgment does not fall on his nation or his chosen ones. These are only for the Egyptians. So why does Moses make it explicit in this passage? Why does he want us to know specifically here that there are no flies getting in to the land of Goshen? Well, I think first of all, it shows the enormity and the magnitude of this miracle. If you've ever tried to kill a housefly, right, you know that it's impossible until they land and are still. It is impossible to predict the flight pattern of a fly, right? If someone could, you would make millions of dollars because we would all buy that technology to kill our houseflies. But the flight of a fly is erratic. It makes no sense to us. There's no way to predict it. And yet to our God, that flight path is perfectly lined out so that God can control the flight path of millions upon millions of flies so that not a single fly enters into the land of Goshen. And so Moses draws our attention to this fact to show the enormity of the power of this miracle. God is actually able to keep every single fly out of the land of Goshen, as impossible as that seems to any human. God is able to accomplish that. He knows even the flight plan of the common housefly and knows where they are going. But not only that, so while God's presence keeps judgment on the Egyptians and protects the Israelites, I think there's something else we don't want to overlook or miss here. And it's not explicit in the text, but I'm, really, I'm willing to assume that this was occurring as well. As God was pouring out judgment upon the Egyptians, 
and knowing that there are Egyptian magicians who serve in the court of Pharaoh, I think it's only right to assume that those magicians were also uttering curses and attacks against the nation of Israel in Goshen. And so just as they're getting attacked by God, and God is striking them with His wonders, they're attempting to go back to the source and to strike the Hebrews with a curse or a punishment as well. And notice that there's no report of that at all. Any attempts to attack the nation of Israel while God is in their midst are utterly futile and impossible. No one can touch the nation of Israel while God is separating them and protecting them. And so God's presence with His people communicates comfort and protection for them. The God who has the power to orchestrate the flight plan of a housefly also is the God who protects and preserves you. And so all through Scripture, the comfort that God gives to His people is always, I am with you. I am with you. God doesn't promise to remove hardship. God doesn't promise to remove trial. He doesn't promise that our life will be easy or that we'll be wealthy or healthy or anything of that nature. What God does promise unequivocally through all the pages of Scripture is that I will be with you. I will never leave you. And so the solution to all of our problems, the comfort that we can all find, is not in our circumstances changing, is not in making more money or being more healthy, but the solution to all of the struggles that we face is the presence of our God. The fact that we serve a God who dwells in our midst. The God who has the power to control the flight plan, the flight plan of a housefly is the same God that dwells with you and that is accessible to you through prayer and through His Word. And so if that kind of a God is available to us and is present with us no matter what we go through, that should communicate great comfort and hope for those of us who walk with Him. And so just as that omnipresence communicates judgment for those who don't know God, you cannot escape His gaze that communicates great comfort and hope for those of us who know God. No matter what we are going through, no matter what difficulty we face, we have the presence of an omnipotent, omnipresent God with us, and that should give us great hope. So, we'll finish out the chapter in verses 25 through 32. And then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, It is not permissible for us to do so, because we will sacrifice to the Lord our God that which is an abomination to the Egyptians. And if we sacrifice that which is an abomination to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? So we must go a three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God, just as he commands us. And Pharaoh said, I will let you go so that you may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you shall not go very far away and plead for me. Then Moses said, Behold, I am going to leave you, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh from his servants and from his people tomorrow. Only do not let Pharaoh deal deceitfully again in not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. And so Moses left Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord. And the Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh 
from his servants and from his people, and not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also, and he did not let the people go. And so here we see again the futility of Pharaoh's character. After an overwhelming display of God's power, the picture of God that is painted here of being able to control everything, there is nothing you can do to harm the Israelites as long as God is with them. And yet, Pharaoh is still clinging for control and clinging for that power. Sure, you can do what you want, but only as far as I say that you can do it. And so that control that Pharaoh is clinging for is obviously compared to the control that God has and the power that he displays in this world. And so ultimately, Pharaoh's cling for power is futile. He cannot withstand the plan that God has or what he has destined for his people. And so for us today, as we come away from this passage with some time to think about the omnipresence of our God, I hope that you come away today with comfort and with hope based on the God who is with you through everything. He doesn't promise to make it easier. He doesn't promise to take it away, but he does promise to be with you. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for this picture of your character and nature that we find in this passage. We thank you for the truth and the hope that you are everywhere. There is nowhere we can go to escape you. Father, I pray that that would result in integrity in our lives. I pray that we would be people who would match what we do in private with how we live in public, and that you would convict us of areas in our hearts where where we need that consistently and help us to be men and women of integrity. And Father, I also pray that as we come away from this passage, we would sense the great comfort that this truth provides to us, that in our darkest moments, in our most depressed states, in our hardest times, You are not far from us. You are present with us even in those times. And so, Father, would our encouragement be found not in a change in our circumstances, not in our life getting better, but would our encouragement come from the fact that Yahweh walks with us through those trials and hardships. And so, Lord, help our feeble hearts to cling to that truth and to find comfort there. Thank you again for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.